The wheel of time turns and ages come and go, leaving memories that become legend. Legend fades to myth, and even myth is long forgotten when the age that gave it birth comes again. In one age, called the Third Age by some, an age yet to come, an age long past, a wind rose in the mountains of mist. The wind was not the beginning. There are neither beginnings nor endings to the turning of the Wheel of Time. But it was a beginning. The Wheel of Time turns and podcasts come and go. Welcome to Wattcast, a Wheel of Time book and watch club. We are reading through Robert Jordan's epic fantasy series and watching Amazon's Wheel of Time TV show. I'm Caleb Wimble, and with me are my co-host, Keely Frank. Hello. And returning friend of the show, joining us to talk about the TV show, Nicholas Wicks. Hey, guys. You can find us at Wattcast.net and support the show at Patreon.com slash Wattcast. Your support means a lot. Even $2 at the Two Rivers tier helps. Join us on Patreon at the $5 Tar Volunteer, and you'll get access to special bonus episodes coming out on a regular basis. Email us questions, comments, and corrections via contact at wattcast.net with the subject line questions. We will answer those here on the show. Send them in. We'll talk about them. Uh, last time, we talked about chapters 41 to 45 of The Eye of the World, which is appropriate because it covers a lot of the ground that we're going to be talking about on this episode. We saw our party reunited at last in the book. The touching reunion didn't last long because we learned the Dark One was close to reaching out of his prison and seizing the titular Eye of the World, whose power will be enough to break him free. This episode, we're talking about episode six of the Wheel of Time TV show, which covers mostly the same events, but with some major twists and differences. This episode is called The Flame of Tar Valen. It was written by Justine Jewell Gilmer, directed by Sally Richardson Whitfield, and developed, as always, by Rafe Judkins. Uh, so we, we open this episode with a young girl and her father who are fishers by trade. We haven't met either of these characters yet up till this point. They wake and they go about their day. We learn the young girl can channel. Then someone burns their house down for it because channelers are not tolerated in Tyr where they live. The father sends the girl away to the White Tower and we learn she is none other than Swan Sanche, the present day Amarlin seat and leader of all Aes Sedai. Uh, what, what what did y'all think of this opening? Did it take you aback realizing this was where we were going? Or did you see the preview last week for this episode so you knew exactly where it was going to take us character-wise? So I didn't see the preview for this next episode. <laughs> um, but as soon as she was on camera, I knew who it was just from all the other trailers and stuff with the, I don't know, are they tattoos or something that the Amberlin seat has? Oh, yeah. Um, so I think those are those are specific to her culture, it seems like, and because okay. uh, her dad, her dad has matching ones. It sort of reminded me of like maybe um, if not Maori, then then some sort of like South like South Pacific Islander mm. tattoos, maybe. Okay, yeah. So as soon as I saw that, I was like, oh, okay. Well, like that's who they're showing. Um, and mm -hmm. then I was just so surprised at how like well she could use the power, being so young. However old she was supposed to be, I assumed like mm -hmm. twelve, but I couldn't really tell. Yeah, which feeds yeah. into. 
Oh yeah, go ahead, Nick. No, no, I was gonna say yeah. The uh, I I, th- I thought it was pretty g- good background on how Swan got there because in, the, in the books it's really important that she's from the fishing village. She's known for using all her like fishing uh, you know analogies and, mm-hmm. and expressions. So I thought it was a good way to introduce the character. Uh, even though from well, where we are in the book's perspective. We have not met Swan Sanche, and I'm not even 100% sure we've heard her name in the eye of the world. Um, I uh, Okay, so Nick, you're the one who's most recently read most of the series. Does she, is she yet another uh, person being brought from the Great Hunt back in? Is that where she first shows up in person? Where Swan shows up in person? Yeah. Uh, is she even... No, I, I think... She, so, so, yeah, no, she, I, I think they refer to her name. They don't refer to her name in the first book. Is that not true? No, I don't think so. She certainly never shows up, but I don't think anybody even names her. Like, I think we hear the Omerlin once or twice, maybe. But I'm trying to remember if she even shows up in the Great Hunt or if they are pulling her all the way from book three, The Dragon Reborn. No, I think you're right. I think it is the Great, I think it is the Great Hunt. It is when, okay. yeah, when Moraine, uh, you know, has this, like, coordinated meeting with her and yeah so that must have been in in book two although certainly the stuff that we are learning about her and her background and all that we only i think we vaguely knew we knew her fishing background and like you said she always uses like all these like idioms that are from that are fishing related or about gutting fish or or something to do with her dad but i don't think we saw any scenes of her younger until maybe all the way in new spring the prequel uh, which you haven't read yet. So it's just like we o- we only see the, the older Omerlin one. And they bring her into this episode in huge ways. Okay, so so Keely, you pointed out the thing, the surprising thing of her having so much skill in the power demonstrated already and, and her dad even commenting on, oh, wow, you're already like untying these knots and everything. He is... Um, He's an he has an amputated left arm, and so he's struggling with the the fishing hook setup and all that. And um and she helps him out with it. And we're learning that it's trouble because they live in tier where channelers are extremely frowned upon. Um, and it's going to get them into trouble if anybody find finds out. But the fact that she's doing this delicate thing with the power so quickly and multiple times last last episode and in this episode, we have people referring to her as the most powerful Aes Sedai uh, in the White Tower and really emphasizing that ability, like her raw strength and maybe her skill as qualifications for being the Omerlin seat. And I'm struggling throughout both these episodes to remember how much that is actually like a true thing in in the books, like how much that that is like, like, yes, Swan is very powerful, but is that like, uh, is that the thing that makes you the Amarillo? Just being the best at magic <laughs> qualifies you to lead the Aes Sedai, which they seem to be hinting at here. Yeah, they, they, the, with Swan, I think they place her as like above average, but not the most powerful um, Aes Sedai from, from what I remember from reading uh, throughout the, the, the rest of the series. I, I think they, and they, ta- they specifically talk throughout the books about how the more powerful usually are placed at a higher, um, even if they're younger, they're placed at a higher level in the, in the, oh, okay. in the books. But, but like I said, she, the Amarillin seat title takes like precedent, I think, over, precedence over, over, you know, that, um, that strength kind of scale. Which has so much to do with the tower politics and political standings that we get really into in this episode. Um, so their house is burned down, right? And the and the dad, who is played by Peter De Jersey and young Swan, played by Kira Shansa, uh, he he sends her off to the White Tower where she can learn to control it and be safe from 
from from all the uh, the prejudices and tear, which sort of to me like uh, I mean we're getting more beautiful shots of the Czech Republic, I guess these like mountain valleys and rivers. But the way that they have done the architecture we see in the background here and the style of their fishing village uh, and and some and some of the buildings we see in the distance, which look to be CG buildings maybe behind the mountains and stuff. The ver- the version of tear they're showing really reminds me of uh, of something South Asian, like maybe Southeast Asian, like Cambodian or Indonesian elements in here even even in their style of clothing and everything yeah there are there are in the i actually thought it reminded me of there there are karst peaks in like southern central china too that that fit that Mm. same that fit that same build that look uh very similar to what they showed in the tier in the tier village so we yeah so we get these introductions to these characters here this setting that we haven't seen in person yet we get into our intro which i realized i was mentioning to keely in the chat we've never actually mentioned the intro to the show like the intro theme song or or, or what it shows in passing and i guess i just wanted to say it's it's been growing on me as the season's gone on i actually do watch it every time and i i like the abstracted thing they're doing with showing the pattern weaving out from the wheel here um i like the the music which is going more for this sort of haunting choral melody thing than necessarily a big bombastic fantasy theme going on uh and then we get into the episode proper at the white tower and things are just wildly different from anything in the eye of the world at this point, what what we're reading, uh, yeah, being brought before the what, what what do we want to talk about first here? There's so much to talk about in the White Tower in this episode and and in this scene, this the scene in particular in Moraine and Swan and Loghain and Leandrin and Alana. <laughs> it's a lot. Um, I think this for me was like the episode of quotes and one-liners because I kept writing shit mm. down as they were talking. Um, I thought that it was Leandrin's such a pain in the ass. Like I'm just so <laughs> sick of her. She feels very high school drama to me um with like very malfoy yeah like trying to throw moraine under the bus and like acting like she's hot shit and then later on like moraine makes a comment to her that shuts her the hell up but um for like this whole scene with Logan, i thought it was really it like really hit the nail on the head how much their world is changing um the mm-hmm. fact that he said you know people out in the world away from here used to like turn away from anyone that claimed to be the dragon and now i have an army behind me ready to take you down and mm-hmm. um the thing that like i really liked was when he said you know what they see is one man against nine women to show like how not powerful you guys are um mm-hmm. it's kind of like oh shit like he's not wrong <laughs> that like his amount of power seemed to be ridiculous compared to theirs because he did kill Kareni. so it was kind of like okay he's got a fucking point but also he's a dick <laughs> and he had basically killed them all even before mm-hmm. I-, I forget how did that even happen that Kareni still wind up dead wound up dead and Nynaeve didn't heal her did he kill her after Nynaeve did the healing of everybody else who was bleeding out or incapacitated or was it just that he immediately killed her versus all of them were still in a healable state at that point I guess it doesn't really matter but yeah it was it, it, that, what you're, you're totally right yeah they're they're really hammering on this thing that we have brought up a couple times of where a lot of the Aes Sedai's power seems to have faded from the world literally and politically but then we have all these new people showing up who suddenly have powers that way outstrip anything they've seen in ages so I yeah I really first of all I I wasn't a huge fan of the last episode and you know I wasn't on, <laughs> uh, on the podcast when you guys talked about it but I heard I, that I don't think any of us were was, uh, yeah. so I was really nervous about this episode and this I really liked this episode I thought there was some like I mean C- Caleb you saw I was like just texting you like crazy during it no <laughs> even knowing you you hadn't been watching it yet uh, <laughs> with all like the bombs that were dropped in this episode but I thought the opening scene was really good because they 
the the way they did the hall, I liked. Uh, you know, I didn't really have a picture of exactly what the hall looked like in my head. Uh, just like mm-hmm. a rough, like congressional parliamentary sort of thing. So I liked the uh, the more the dramatic, like uh, marble and the colors that they brought in and everything. I thought that was really good. I also did like that um, that Logan called out the Aes Sedai's lack of power and like sort of like you guys said devolving place in the world because even though I feel like in book one you don't really I didn't get a huge sense of that in book one to me in book one the Aes Sedai were like very well respected and like you know I, I had a pretty positive opinion of them and I won't give any way any spoilers but like as the books progress your your opinion on them evolves in a lot of different ways and you realize that it's not just like one one organization that has like this everyone's the same there's like a lot of you know like sex and different things going on so i'd like that he alluded to like themes that are definitely going to come out later in the books uh in the scene where he starts you know decrying the fact that they're so weak at, at this point yeah that was something we brought about in the book talk this week in the episode we recorded the other day uh that we we didn't even like an eye of the world there's barely even any mention of the Ajas until nearly the end of the book. And we ha- and then you only get the red mentioned somewhat early on. And even where we are now, you, we Moraine just revealed that she's blue for the first time. So the idea of all these factional differences and their goals being so distinct, we really, she's just so close to we our only representation of Moraine as this, the she's out here trying to save the world. So she's the only Aes Sedai we really know until we meet Elida, who definitely seems a lot more... Uh, if not quite sinister, um, a, a, a very different figure from Moraine with a very different set of priorities. But we don't get anything like this. This is this is real, like yeah, getting into the nitty gritty of the tower and what uh, what holds them together and what tears them apart. At this point, uh, Eric uh, mentioned again that how how handy it is and how glad I am that they're just taking the route of simplifying by all the Aja wear only their color clothing at yeah. any given time, like uniforms. It does make it a lot easier to keep track than I feel like this otherwise would be. I'm, I'm very, I'm totally fine with that visual change, even though almost none of them wear shawls. And they, even though they mentioned the shawls uh, as being, uh, they, that's, this is like the first time in this episode, right? I think it's the Amerlin mentions like earning your shawl or something, but it must be metaphorical here, <laughs> symbolic. I liked it on that same note. I, I actually made a note uh, on my phone last night while you're going through us for a few of the things. And one of them was that I did like the, the way they dress was cool. And I also like how in the book, they focus a lot on how like the greens are like, you know, uh, they have multiple warders and they're, uh, they're like, you know, uh, more promiscuous and that they they talk a lot about how their dresses are much more low cut than the others, which you could, (laughs) was very apparent, uh, in the, in the scene with, with her and Leandrin, with Alana Leandrin and Maureen, where Maureen and Leandrin Mm -hmm. dress are so much more conservative and, uh, you know, high neck. Yeah. The, uh, the, the fun and games, Aja, it's very, it's very hard, hard to see at various points why more people wouldn't flock to green (laughs) than than the other one. They, they seem to be having a much good, a good, much better time of things in addition to being the battle Aja, I guess. Um, but we do get, uh, we get to know Swan a little bit in her public face here. Now, this is one of those things where it's been so long since I read these books. I did, I did have, um, a mixed feelings about the way that a Swan is the the public face that she's giving here. So she's played by um, Sophie Okonedo, uh, who who we've seen in a lot of TV shows, I think, over the past decade, or at least she feels very familiar. Um, and uh, and and you know, like just about everyone so far, I thought pretty well cast throughout this episode. I did find her dialogue here, though. Um, 
where she starts being like, you dare to challenge me to Loghain personally and getting really into, I did not write down her exact words. So let's see if I can find uh, the gist of it here to some extent. Um, Oh yeah. She, I mean, she does it for, she does it for Moraine as well. And we see in the course of episode, why this is a necessary show, why she needs to put on this front with Loghain and with Moraine. But by the same token, she is presenting this this vi- this version of her ideals and the Aes Sedai centered on her strength and coming back to, again, on her power and on the right of the Aes Sedai to just trammel over the world and to do whatever they please and no one dare challenge them as a might makes right ethos that to me is not something I can ever think of Swan saying in the books, pub- publicly or not. Like I, I, I tend to think of her as a character who represents the very lofty ideals of the White Tower as, and it you know, and maybe I'm misremembering, even as she shows in, in The Great Hunt. But I would think of her as giving a much more idealistic, like, you know, we 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 serve the world type speech here. But that's not what she gives. She gives uh, the world better get under our feet and deal with it or else. And that includes you, Legane, and that includes you, Moraine, kind of speech here. I, I don't know. Um, uh, so I'd, I'd be curious, Keely, what your reaction was to this not ever having any, met her in any form at all. And then Nick, what your reaction was as somebody who is much more recently familiar with what she's actually like in the books than I am. Yeah, I was not a fan of that whole like bow <laughs> down to me. I'm fucking amazing. Um, it just felt very over the top. And like I even I was taking notes at certain points. And then later on in the episode, I was like, uh, <laughs> like everything's making uh, sense now. <laughs> so like having no interaction with her, it felt shitty. Like, I don't know why. I expected her to not be so arrogant, but it came across as mm-hmm. very arrogant. Um, and I guess like anytime that someone does have like a ridiculous amount of power, if they come across as like they know they do, that pisses me mm-hmm. off. Like I don't like that at all. Like be a little bit humble, please. Um, so I didn't really enjoy that part, but I think it made sense given the context of everything else that happened. But even knowing that, it still feels like wouldn't they know that's fake unless she was like that all the time? Yeah, and and I and I keep coming back to who was it a couple episodes. Which which Sedai was pointing out to us that you know I Sedai literally means servants of servant of all and that was and that's supposed to be their guiding mentality uh, even though you know and and the irony being being that they don't necessarily embody that at, at this point in the world but some of them still try to and maybe I'm clinging to this version of, of Swan who privately and publicly does really believe that that her main role is as a, a public servant essentially what do, what do you think Nick I think she she has to put on the the mask of like the white tower and i think she's aware of of how the white tower views itself and how the eyes that i view themselves and like how they're positioned in the world but i feel like because of her you know this larger mission that she's on uh you know alongside moraine she still has to like she has to mask that somehow and present this like super strong front so i i think that's kind of how i how i took her her arrogant attitude yeah it, it totally makes sense to me with regard to Moraine and with the, you know, like, like really making a show of dressing her down. I guess it's more the Loghain part that I'm reacting to in terms of the, the face presented to the world. But, but I do think they're really handling it well with uh, what bo- both of you mentioned, the reveal of her actual relationship with Moraine and the fact that they, that nobody can know that they are allies and more than allies in, in this case with each other here. But the things with, I think it was the part with Loghain that to me just felt downright, uh, downright shitty uh, in terms of uh, the, uh, the dressing down. And, you know, and then, uh, but I really like the way that it's handled uh, from the, uh, from 
the switch that is made with with Loghain seeming you know really spiteful and 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 kind of sexist in his throwback until we realize a moment later as Swan realizes fully that he's just trying to get them to kill him to execute him that he's just looking for the easier out of all this now now that they have cut him off um and we transition right from that moment into the thing you mentioned, Keely, the Leandrin throwing Moraine under the bus after Moraine and uh, and Alana just stood up for her uh, and uh, and being called to task because Moraine has been missing for like 20 years and nobody's know, know what she's up to and she's not sharing her secrets or her information with everyone. So what the hell is she doing and what is she supposed to be doing? And it's time to call for her account, um, which is... It's interesting that they put all this here in light of what we talked about before, that they don't stop by Tarvalin in the novel. And there's none of this, um, none, none of the scene, none, none of the sequence, none of the uh, the sense of what we wondered of. Keely, was it you or you who brought up like, well, why doesn't why doesn't Moraine go back to the White Tower to confer with her sisters to heal Matt permanently? Yeah. Although we'll get to that. They there's I was very surprised at the degree to which they seem to um throw that plot line away in a, in a significant way and then maybe not at, at the end of the episode so many twists here uh, this, is, this is just a twisty turny episode of of surprises from book things um and the, and then we go from the white tower and this uh this the showdown with leandrin and, and maureen's going to be held to account tomorrow uh or or she's going to receive the Amerlin's judgment tomorrow and then is it we go to maureen meeting with Megan? Next, at that point, the uh, who is the head of the blue here, uh, who is a much who is not that character in the book at this point. She's not the head of the blue at this point. Megan is a character from much, much later in the series um, with an initially much smaller role who I think they're folding into whichever character actually was the head of the blue Aja at this point in the story, which I don't know. Maybe you remember, Nick, or maybe that's too many books ago now. Um, I don't know if they any thoughts on this. I don't know if they mentioned the head of the blue Aja even early on like i feel like it must mm. must have occurred somewhere in mid-series yeah i i the did a question for you guys having read so it's interesting because i i i thought they handled the whole tar Valen. i knew it was something was off i knew i didn't remember all these details but i did feel like the general concept was there the spirit of it was there uh and like it sort of made sense to me as a uh, combining some of the plots from from book two the great hunt and, and, and with eye of the world but did they did moraine actually like like threaten Leandrin in the book? Like, was she able to somehow like shoot her down? Because I, I don't recall that or not. Leandrin is not in the Eye of the World. We have not uh, met okay. her at this point. <laughs> I, I I think she might be another great hunt character. Um, the oh, the only other Aes Sedai that we see on on screen on page in the Eye of the World is Elida when when Rand is at Morgaze's court, and Moraine doesn't meet her. In fact, in, in the chapters we just read, Moraine is very deliberately avoiding all the other Aes Sedai because they're in Camelin when they go, when they reunite the whole party and then go into the ways. And all the Aes Sedai in Camelin are red. There's like 20-something red Aja who are there with Loghain, who is not gentled yet. And they're they're taking him on the way to Tar Valen, um, setting up the great Hun event. So yeah, it's a very different dynamic. And both have a really interesting way of handling something we identified as being, I think, for for Dan, especially a point of contention in these chapters we read of the everybody gets reunited. And then we just kind of get propelled into Moraine realizing, oh, God, uh, the eye of the world is in jeopardy. The dark one is going to break out. We need to get to the blight right now. Mm -hmm. And I feel like the show kind of has to do the same thing in a different way since we're in Tar Valen for this part and and finding what seems to be, I, I think, a pretty good excuse of getting her exiled by 
the end of the episode, um, which I'm not sure is something that ever happens at all in the books. The, the is it? She she gets she gets punished. <laughs> I, I'm right? so thrown. Like she gets punished or verbally admonished is what she gets. Uh, yeah. Maureen from from Suan. I think she like they, like she like dresses her down in front of uh, other Aes Sedai, or or at least she makes it seem that way. I think in the in the second book where like she gets mm-hmm. you know, but um, yeah, I mean that then that that scene just transitions into her her with uh, with uh, Swan, and that was just like <laughs> that's what I was texting you about. It was like blew my mind when she. Uh, she and Swan were were having relations, and then there's some uh-huh. great one-liners there. And Swan says, "You know, get on your knees." And I just like gasped and was like was looking around <laughs> the room, the empty room, and staring at no one and looking for a reaction because it was just you know such a great revelation. I actually think that that's a really interesting way to approach approach their relationship too, and it makes kind of more sense because there's always this kind of uh, disconnect between uh, Swan and Moraine where they were like friends as novices and then they eventually literally bunk mates yeah. right as novices yeah yeah and then they just disconnect uh and then kind of go their separate ways but uh there's still a connection there so i liked i liked the way they handled it i thought i thought it was like a, a creative way to to put them in a relationship uh or put that relationship into um like this sort of plot line right because you have also not read a new spring yet the prequel starring moraine and much much more young swan sanche right you're you're like almost there you're one book away oh yeah am i unspo- that one or something am I like the unspoiling it? am i creating uh non-spoilers because i, I haven't read it because yeah that, that's my from not having read the prequel yet uh, that was like my uh perception yeah i i mean i can i can say i i think um it it's probably it's probably fine since we're pointing out differences here and since the show is going on in some continuity and I don't want anybody to be disappointed as we're reading reading through these there it is there's no no sexual or romantic relationship ever made explicit between Swan and Moraine but a large part of New Spring is concerned it, it has to do with the fact that they are way 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 closer than anybody else realizes and that they have this sort of secret pact go- going on that they are weaving this whole long-term plan together that we get hints of throughout this episode of uh, that requires them to pretend like you know barely to even know each other in public and certainly not to be friends um which also gives meaning to something we were really tilting our heads about the other week with the uh portrait in episode five Mm. in moraine's bedroom and what the meaning of that was the strange painting that turns out to be a terror we are we are jumping through about half the episode though i'm realizing um because there is a lot of tension and build up to before that night where they actually um meet together we because there's so many threads here that Moraine is like bustling, bustling around Tarvalin, tying up plot threads, addressing outstanding dangers, reuniting the party. She's like going from building to building, meeting the separated members of the party as, as they're brought together. She has, she has that bath scene with Mygon where where they catch catch up and doesn't matter much long term because Mygon wants the head of the blue here is trying to is basically ordering her back to the tower. And Moraine knows that she can't do that because She's on a secret mission that she can't tell Megan about. Um, so what what's she gonna do? That's a problem. She she can't be stuck in the White Tower. She has to she has to um, deal with her charges. One of whom is the Dragon Reborn. They uh, they go to 
I guess one of Moraine's little birds finally comes through and she does know that Rand and Matt are in the city, which was something we were like last time. Like, okay, Moraine's got the spy network everywhere. How does she not seem to know anything that's going on here? turns out she does. She was just late getting here, I guess. And she arrives and we get a scene that all of us loved in, in the book of the, the, uh, addressing and healing of Matt from the dagger sort of and and the moment where um, he you know lashes out and tries to kill Moraine with the dagger and uh, you know we talked about uh, they they did they did the scene a little bit differently here but we talked about like this perfect shot set up in the book where where Matt goes right to her neck and she doesn't even flinch because she knows she knows that Lan is like right there and grabs his arm at the last possible second here Um, we've, we've got her dressing down Rand for you know for hiding all of this and and she recognizes immediately that he's not that it's not channeling that's the problem with Matt we're, we're ending that misdirection at this point Matt is not a channeler as far as we know so here uh, we get the Shatter Logoth dagger uh, th- thoughts on this scene coming into place here and all, all this finally happening yeah I really liked it um, I liked the way that they changed it for the show with the um, whatever it's called coming out of Matt and then like trying mm. to force itself down her throat to be like you know take her over I thought was so freaking gross yeah, good and creepy visual. Yeah, it reminded me a lot of that scene that I'm like hella traumatized from in Little Nemo, the cartoon movie Mm. uh, where the king is like swallowed up by the giant like oil thing or whatever the hell it was. Um, I thought that was great. And I also this was the first time that I really felt like this Rand matches the book Rand because the Hmm. book Rand is an idiot and we can't stand him. (laughs) And he's like he just reads very young. And this was the first time when Maureen was like, the hell is wrong with you? Like he's going to die because you're being a dumb shit like thank you for pointing that out because he clearly is struggling um mm-hmm. and in the show does Rand know that matt has the dagger was that like made explicit or is that just in the book that like no. you can see him reach for it every two seconds no i don't think he knows it in the show and that's one of okay. the reasons i'm actually really really sympathetic in this machine and i think moraine is being an asshole under- understandably um be- i mean she doesn't know that right. Rand has very good v- the show has given us very good reason to think and given Rand very good reason to think and had multiple much wiser and more knowledgeable characters tell him or specifically Tom tell him that yeah yeah he can, he can channel you got to keep him away from the Aes Sedai and we've seen what the red are like in this one um and really like how how much does Rand know Moraine at this point and whether she is going to immediately turn around and kill Matt as far as he is concerned but just, so I don't know I was I was a little more sympathetic to his position here like what's he so what, what what was he supposed to do I guess is the thing no, knowing what he knows in the show or what he think thinks he knows about Matt right now yeah I mean I guess but I also feel <laughs> like he this kind of plays into still like them discrediting Moraine that like he looks like shit you think she's not gonna notice yeah. that he <laughs> looks like shit like how much is not talking True. about it doing anything um so I like I get kind of both sides but also what the fuck right like <laughs> Matt <laughs> (laughs) is clearly struggling if nothing else like this is not he can visually not hide what's happening to him yeah he does look terrible even before Mashadar black inky stuff gets pulled out of his throat and recontained in the dagger although huge critical difference here that I think the show is just lying about again and misdirecting where it's a very very important thing we talked about extensively in the book that she is not able to heal Matt she is like able to temporarily contain Mashadar within him but notes two things one she can't separate him from the dagger and the dagger is going to reinfect him and two it's going to infect him and then the entire world probably and wherever he goes and this is a really big deal and an existential threat here 
she says flat out he's healed, he's fine, as long as he doesn't touch the dagger again. And then very cheekily, the show just refuses to let us see what happens to the dagger. Doesn't even show her like putting it away somewhere, I don't think, um, or and like, doesn't show it on the camera again. I thought this was cheating a good bit in, in terms of misdirection and trying to make the audience think that this is resolved when it's clearly not going to be, I think. And it's tra- for, for a jump surprise at the end of the episode. It, what did you all think about this? They... There was a, yeah, that, that dagger really, uh, presents itself for a long time throughout the books. Like it, it just, <laughs> it, that thing makes its way through, through many different books uh, uh, and plot lines. And so it's interesting that they just decided to, um, cut it off. I guess, I guess it, it, yeah. it sort of makes sense because they can still accomplish all of the, um, effects of the dagger that it has and the, the scenarios that arise from the dagger, you know, stabbing people and being owned by certain people, etc. They can still make those things happen without the dagger being involved. So I think maybe, you know, I understand where it came from, oh, but, but... But that's the thing. I don't think it's going anywhere based on what happens at the end of the episode. I think they're just pretending like uh, like it, that this is the end of it and that Matt is healed and all oh, that. Oh, so you think that you think the dagger is going to rear its head <laughs> again, that, they, that have, this isn't the end that we're seeing. Well, to jump ahead 40 minutes in the episode, Matt stays behind and doesn't go with them into the ways in a very ominous and what the hell is going on with Matt way. And she does say this line, as long as he doesn't touch it again. Well, I'm like, uh, so I, I don't know. To me, that reads as by the end of the episode, the dagger is probably still working on him in some way. That's what keeps him behind. And that's also what's going to allow them to transition out Barney Harris for um, for uh, Donald, who's, excuse me, his name. I, for, I forget the name of the replacement actor. Um, yeah. But I don't. Be, yeah. that we're jumping around, I know. But the in the book, does. Uh, I don't remember. In the book, Matt never ends up like, you know, in the in the in the eye of the world area and stuff like that. Right. Or he he kind of. Oh, no, he goes with he, them. He does. He, okay. He's there. Okay. okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Then maybe. Yeah. Maybe, maybe uh, not that. <laughs> Well, I don't know, like, I was, was it, um, I forget who it was, maybe it was Dan, that was saying that they thought, like, maybe they would make Matt so kind of fucked up that they could yeah. transition to the new actor and be just, like, play exactly. it off as, like, oh, his voice changed because of the <laughs> dagger. Um, but I think the only thing that they show is that, like, the bad shit gets put back in the dagger and it hits the ground and then, like, Lan comes right. out of nowhere and, like, throws a pillowcase over it. <laughs> it's, like, that's kind yes. of the end, like, we don't see it again, so we never mm-hmm. actually see if Lan has it or if Moraine has it or if Matt was able to like get it back or whatever because she says mm-hmm. like you know he's fine as long as it doesn't go near it again because he's still yeah. there's so much like darkness in him that it'll just be drawn to it so it's very like you know just whatever you do keep Boromir away from the ring because it'll fuck him yes. up so um yeah I kind of felt that way too that like as soon as it closed as soon as they kept him out I was like is this the end of Barney Harris <laughs> like so sad of it because he does such a great job but yeah I I agree with you that I think that they're setting us up to think that things are fine mm-hmm. and clearly they're not. Well, and, and it's it's what you mentioned with the pillow thing too. That's specifically what feels like the cheat to me in that from a film language perspective, we know there is nothing more important in this scene besides the people than the dagger. That is made clear. That is Moraine's focus. That is the camera's focus. That is the dialogue's focus. And she points out the inherent danger of this. You cannot do that. 
I think, from a filmmaking perspective, and then not show us what, not show the camera lingering on the dagger at the end of the scene or showing us what happens to it, because that is the foremost thing on every one of these characters' minds and on the camera's mind and in our perspective here. That's the part that felt to me like a brazen, there is a shot missing from this. There is a, you have to show, just show the dagger lying on the ground, which that wouldn't make sense. No, they're not going to leave it there, right? So you have to show who picks the dagger up, who carefully slides it into their cloak, whether that's Lan or holding it for Moraine or Moraine like lifting up with air and wrapping it in something that is missing. That feels like a cheat. I, I don't want to belabor the point too much, but there were the, that was one of those filmmaking moments that I'm like, you can't do that. That's not allowed. <laughs> yeah. uh, you're cheating the perspective of the scene here and, and pretending the audience isn't going to notice. Well, and that just plays into the, like, if it happens off camera, it didn't happen. So the whole thing, we, yeah, we no. talked about how many times with Tom that, like, uh, he died off camera that he didn't fucking die. Like, so yeah, yeah. <laughs> something happened with the dagger off camera, dagger's still here. Like, we'll find out later. Tom will show up mm-hmm. with the dagger. <laughs> that, I mean, that led us into, like, uh, that, that, what, that, you know, the next scenes, they, they heal uh, Perrin as well, right? Which was uh, oh, where yeah. they, like, talk about healing Perrin and, and what his like wolfy characters are are our characteristics are are coming from a little bit but uh it also mm-hmm. brings in my alongside actually i felt like the dagger in my mind was a lot more glorious than the sort of like pocket knife that it ended up being in the episode but the other my big my <laughs> bigger dis- disappointment with uh with with misrepresentations are, are loyal just popping up again and uh, you got maybe mm-hmm. you guys talked about this in your last episode but just <laughs> just continue oh, yeah. to be vast disappointed every time loyal comes on screen i just like <laughs> shake my head and i'm like god how did they do this yeah so, uh yeah i at some point i'm hoping maybe i'll just get used to it uh and just and just accept that that is that's got that's how it's got to be uh maybe they'll change things in season two i, I don't know um but we do get the scene with perrin and Egwene. this was something i mentioned uh off air to to you, Keely, that I found confusing and it didn't seem to go anywhere is that Moraine, um, she, obviously she can't lie, but she deceives Egwene into thinking that she doesn't know where Rand and Matt are at this point, which seemed like a real dick move to me and unnecessary given uh, in, in the course of the episode. I wasn't really sure what her game is here. I think you, you suggested maybe she's just trying to make sure she knows everything that's going on before uh, and that everybody's okay before letting everybody reunite here. Um, though I did feel the contradiction in Moraine just has this dressing down of Rand for why wouldn't you go seeking out help about this? And then she co- comes and finds out what is going on with Perrin and she's like, you must not tell anyone about this. Don't, don't uh, uh, like keep this a sworn secret. If any other Aes Sedai uh, find out, uh, Perrin is probably fucked. Make sure that this is just between you and me. So it's like, well, when you're not here, Moraine, how is anybody supposed to know what the right way is to handle things or what they're supposed to be doing? But, but, I, did, but I did like the scene and the reveal of her um her understanding of what's going on with Perrin, which I felt like similar to her reaction in the book. And they are again muddying the waters and in terms of now it's time for us to um now that we're done suggesting that Matt could be the dragon reborn, even though he still might kind of be, now it's time to suggest that Perrin could be the dragon reborn and that we don't know what form his power is going the or or you know the, that the dragon reborn's power is going to take. It could take presumably even the form of being a wolf brother she's suggesting here and then the point where i was just like uh, what what excuse me was when she suggests that uh was is it this scene that she suggests the dragon reborn soul could be split into all five of them and that it might all five be the dragon reborn and that was the moment where i was like okay show 
if you are just doing all this to try to confuse book readers and misdirect uh, people who've never seen or read any of this before, this feels like a bit much to me. It feels like over the top. I feel like we have enough with the possibility that it's any one of them, unless that is going to be the huge change of what it's leading up to, uh, that all five are the Dragon Reborn. (laughs) I don't know. I was just like, I know I'm getting so hung up on lore stuff and book differences here in a way, but this episode was just so much twisting and turning in that sense that I didn't know what to think. This That whole thing kind of felt to me like, oh, okay, those are like the kids are just the horcruxes. Like he just split his mm. fucking powers <laughs> so that it's across, you know, how many people. Um, but I did, one thing I forgot to mention is that um, Master Gill is in the show. Like, cause he's the guy yeah. that tells that tells uh, Moraine and Land that that's the room. Um, cause I saw the name pop up and I was like, hold on, what does that say? Cause we were bummed that Master <laughs> Gill plays such a big role in the books and not in the show. So he is in the show for like two seconds and then you know no dialogue. Um, this was the first time that I like really really loved Egwene because Moraine comes in and she's like, oh, we can fucking heal his back. He won't even have scars. You'll never know. And then mm, Egwene's yeah. like, yeah, emotional scars, you dumb bitch. And I was <laughs> like, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> like parent is so fucked up so yeah. fucked up and j- they just keep adding more and more trauma to him and so i was happy that mm-hmm. Egwene was like being protective of him and that she also picked up on the wolf thing because how many times has rand like oh his eyes or at least in the book he's like yeah, oh yeah. he looks so fucking familiar and Egwene's like it's a fucking wolf so i know they're like <laughs> two different experiences she actually got to see the wolves but in the show but mm. like i just appreciate how protective Egwene is of parent because he just feels like a little baby bird right now just ready to get squashed i felt like knocked out of the nest four times the yeah. the the soul splitting dragon kind of theme reveal too to me was like i think part of um a lot of the show i i'm really enjoying and, and can get behind but part of it feels like they do have these situations where it sort of just feels like they're trying to solve a problem and not thinking about like how do we like holistically bring this theme through like they're kind of just like oh well we'll, we'll keep the suspense really high by saying it could be mm-hmm. multiple people <laughs> and then like that's kind of their way of like misdirecting who it could be still rather than you know let's let's keep uh pushing the characters one way or another or or introducing different parts of their powers uh so to speak to to the mm-hmm. show so so to me yeah i wasn't a big fan of that and it feels like it's it, it occurs in more than more than one example too there is much we don't know of the dragon reborn uh, according to moraine in the scene <laughs> so we'll see if that's true uh, and it ends with her technically telling the truth to Egwene, uh like i mentioned that oh i have lots of people watching to see when they come to the city and i have it on good authority they're okay uh but Egwene's like oh but you'll tell me if uh, as soon as you find them and i forget what moraine says to not technically lie about it um before going to the scene of where we find out that she she's combing her hair out in her chambers and land comes in wondering why moraine has suppressed their bond which is, I think, maybe the first mention we've had of this. Uh, I don't even, I don't think that's, that's another thing I don't think we find out in Eye of the World is that Aes Sedai can suppress the bond with their warders so that they can't sense each other, can't feel each other for a time. And she justifies it to him pretty convincingly about, uh, well, I've actually forgotten now about the things that they both have to do and, and the fact that she's sending him off to guard the two rivers folk instead of her because that needs to be his highest priority and he's not happy about that but he's going to do it so that she can approach this uh painting this in inside the metal frame and turns out to be a tirangriol i have lots of questions about this tirangriol and about the the meaning of where we go in the scene and what happens with it in light of 
many other events of the bo later books that we can't talk about. So maybe Keeley, what is your impression of what happens in, in the scene here? Uh, from your perspective, what is, what is this story? Yeah, so I, I was like writing down notes almost every single scene. And so um, I wrote down Moraine Master Bond with Lan looks at the painting at the window a lot. Is the window a portal? Would anyone know that she's using the power? <laughs> okay, she fast traveled. They're working together. They were lovers. <laughs> like just kind of like getting more and more hype the whole time. Um, I have a question though. So, you know, the the Aes Sedai are allowed to use the power, but they, you know, they can't use it as just like a weapon just because they fucking want to. But when each time that they use it, does it do anything? Like, can, is there like a finite amount of times that they can access the power, or is it kind of like whenever you want to for whatever you want to, as long as you're not going crazy or working with the Dark One? It's like Caleb, I'll jump in. They, I, I think it is infinite, but they, there are points. I mean, even you saw it in the Leandrin scene with, uh, with Loghain, where they, she says like, you might burn out if you, if you pull more of the power in. So I think the, the idea is like, there's not, um, there's not a limited amount of like, uh, power you can you can use in the universe that's being slowly drained from. It's more just uh, how much your your person and and body can can handle. Yeah, and it's and it's exhausting to keep doing it. Uh, we see, I think, very early on, the the biggest inclination we get of that is that is how much how Moraine gets tired after all the healings yeah. and and the you know rejuvenating everybody else to keep them going on the road. And granted, the dagger is something different, but she looks like she's might fall over after after withdrawing Mashadar from Matt putting it putting it back into the dagger there. And I think that's maybe a combination of the fight with Mashadar, but also that it is it is physically uh, draining. Um, but yeah, like 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 you said, Nick, I think it, the the only cap is your own personal stamina and capacity then different people have different capacities okay. to safely hold amounts of the one power and the only example we've gotten of what happens from pulling too much so far is the story of Manetherin and the last queen of Manetherin when she when her husband oh, the king yeah. dies on the battlefield she draws in enough of the one power to blow herself up in a, in a nuclear flame uh, essentially that wipes out the entire Trollock armies and and the and the old kingdom of Manetherin and we kind of see the scene you mentioned with Leandra and Nick or her they're visualizing it by her face almost starting to crack apart with light coming through pores looking like she might literally explode if she takes any more at, at that scene trying to trying to fight Loghain so I think they're setting us up for that to happen eventually although so, that is very uh -huh. I was just wondering so like the the different I said however many colors there are because I feel like every time I learn all the colors then they show wearing additional fucking colors colors but um so i was wondering like okay so it made moraine really exhausted to kind of heal everyone or like take their their fatigue away and then i noticed she doesn't heal parents back she's the yellow will so i was wondering mm -hmm. like so the yellow then potentially wouldn't get drained from healing someone the way that a blue would the blue wouldn't necessarily get drained making portals to be like spies compared to like another color because she has been using the power of fucking lot lately and mm -hmm. it seems like even you know the end when she opens the way gate she breathes a little heavy but she's like all right let's fucking go <laughs> so i would just like 
I guess I'm just having a hard time kind of tracking like how they use the power and in what ways mm-hmm. they can or can't and what it does to them physically. It's just like, I don't know if that's just, you know, supposed to be vague or if the show is kind of throwing it all over the place or what. I think the show is not being specific. Like they're just sort of alluding to this general wariness that occurs after using some some amount of the power. Because the books, yeah, the mm-hmm. books really refer to like e- each person as having, like Caleb, you said, more or less capacity than another. So I do feel like the show is being a little bit elusive um, around it. And they do. You mentioned the yellow Keely. I, we get the one line last week about how when Leandrin and Moraine have that little, that spat about Nynaeve in the hall, uh, where Leandrin seems to think that there's some chance of Nynaeve joining the mm. red, which Moraine is like, yeah, good luck with that. <laughs> if anything, she's probably going to join the yellow because of yeah. that healing ability um and i don't think they're meaning to imply that you know like the yellow can heal without consequence so much as you different people are good at different things in the power they have different skills with different kind of weaves the only thing the book has told us about that is that moraine is especially gifted in air it's kind of her signature element for uh for air and like why maybe why the way that she weaves it together for for wind and for the whirlpool and for lightning and stuff bringing in other elements like water water and fire in those but that different isodai will have Different things that they are more skilled at, both in terms of the elements and in terms of their general combining healing abilities. Um, like healing is something that does take all the elements, I think. Is that is that right? All five elements of the one power, Nick? I mean, but this is stuff that they'll get into as we as more of our young channeler characters start to learn to channel and, and learn how the power works mechanically. Which we uh, we don't see much of in this scene that we we've sort of generally talked about with with Moraine and Swan here of reuniting and uh, being um, explicitly lovers, being really close, having having this secret plan they're working towards, and they're meeting in whatever this this Tirangrial space is. I don't think the show gives us any indication where they are, other than that it looks like Swan's burned down childhood home, which it clearly cannot be, uh, and we know that Tyr is thousands of miles away um uh but and they but where yeah whether they're in a pocket dimension in in the white tower or something else entirely i think is left completely ambiguous because something that the books mention in the last chapters we read about when she finds out that the that the the two rivers folks have been concealing these balsamon dreams which as you as we've mentioned have kind of fallen by the wayside in the show they're like barely around anymore that the threat seems to have de-escalated when she finds when Moraine finds out about that in the eye of the world she's if you had told me that i would have tried to dreamwalk or found someone who could or could dreamwalk even though we haven't had dreamwalkers in in like a thousand years and so immediately that's kind of what i'm thinking of in the scene is this a dream space of some sort is this a some other sort of pocket dimension but we don't really know we get we get uh, the the very fun scene between the two of them and the the moment you mentioned uh nick of their sort of like you know role reversal here um with uh at least in this scene moraine sort of play, playing the more dominant one uh with the kneel, the kneel before me um which is uh, all in all just a no, i was gonna say yep. such a such a great scene <laughs> just so much fun uh yeah. I, I thought it was like great because in the 
in the parts of the books I'm reading, they talk about like the the Athian Meir Sea Folk uh, wedding vows, which um, you know, just not going to reveal any spoilers, but like they say, the person who's the more powerful one in public must be the one who's less powerful in private. And so I thought that was a cool like uh, I don't know connection that I made with that because clearly, uh, clearly Moraine is is so in in this relationship. Um, and I guess this is the scene where they talk about all the the new pot dragon possibilities from before. Yeah, I, I had a question though. So one of them says something about being stilled. Is that the same as mm-hmm. being gentled, but like the female version? Yep. Okay. Yeah, we've got to have have different gender terms for them because it's that kind of world. <laughs> so for- have they have they explained like when they would ever do that? Like why would they take power uh, ability to access the power away from female? Well, they hint here that you, if you are really disobedient to the Omerlin seat, that might be one possibility. It seems oh. like it's on the table that if Moraine had betrayed the interest of the White Tower enough, or if Leandrin had betrayed the interest of the White Tower enough uh, by what she did, it, it, the, the trial was interesting because we know the Aes Sedai have the three vows uh, not to lie, not to use the one power as a weapon, except in last defense, except against Darkspawn or in last defense of the Aes Sedai's life or the life of her warder. And finally, not to use the one power to create a weapon that that uh, normal human beings could use to destroy one another. Um, but we also learned that they have all these other rules and laws that they're supposed to adhere to, like in terms of the, the proper trial procedure for, for gentling and everything. And that, that's a very serious breach in and of itself. Um, though that part got a little strange to me because like every, every single person who was there was kind of in unanimous agreement of like, yeah, there was no other choice but to but to cut Loghain off in this moment. Swan has the the good retort in the trial that, um, oh, and this comes back to the servants of all things. She's like, well, these rules are to protect the world, not to protect us. They are to assure people that we're not tyrannical, all-powerful monsters. So better for you to die than for um, than to, you know, break the trial procedures, I guess, and to gentle Loghain without a trial. But also that seemed to be ignoring the turnaround fact that he's leading armies. He is like, he is washing across the land. He, he's a threat to kingdoms, not just to those eyes to die there at that point. And if they see him as, and if they believe he's a false dragon, then he's a, a much bigger threat uh, to the world otherwise. So I don't know, that, that felt like a little bit of... Um, uh, again, the the swan having to put on a face for public appearance rather than anything substantive about the rules being broken there. But otherwise, I don't know that we've learned why a woman would have to be stilled. One possibility I can think of, we have had only mentioned in passing in the show and several times in the book that some people believe that there is a black Aja. And in fact, in the chapters we just read, Balzaman claims that, there, that he does have Aes Sedai working for him, so that they're a dark friend, Aes Sedai, which we don't know how that's possible at this point, because how could you be bonded on the oath rod and have to swear the three oaths, which make it impossible to be a dark friend and also serve the dark one at the same time? And that is like a mystery right now, I think. We have no idea how those things can be um, can be resolved. So we, we move to the next day from the scene of revelations with Swan and Moraine, uh, which is... I think uh, like that's a pretty good a pretty good way of getting us the relationship in early here rather than not finding out about it till the prequel written 15 years after after the eye of the world and we get the scene of of a partial reunion here with a Gawain and Nynaeve I was actually losing track of who was reunited when throughout this episode at, at various points 
Uh, but we get this wonderful moment of the t- of the two two rivers women sa- standing uh, against the uh, against the Omerlin in her in her chambers. I got to say, I wasn't a fan of of nine of um, Egwene having this line of why is she, so why is she called the Omerlin seat when there is also the uh, when there's also the literal seat here? Why are they the same thing? Like like she's never heard of the concept of metonymy at any point and or like never even heard of the Omerlin seat. It's like, you know, it feels like a child asking, how can the White House issue a press release? The White House is just a building or like how can how can the Vatican say something when the Vatican's not a person? Uh, which I, I don't know. It seemed I felt like they were give it, not not giving the audience enough of the benefit of the doubt there uh, with Egwene. But I lo- I love this the the different characterizations here as they're all reacting in different ways and Moraine kind of quietly smiling at at Nynaeve, uh just having none of of Swan's condescension or or just uh, whereas Egwene is kind of cowed by it a little bit, not sure how to react, not sure whether to bow curtsy. Lots of fun little dynamics going on throughout this moment yeah i was watching um maureen's face anytime they had her on camera because she's just in the back like oh shit she's giving it to you um i i liked how they made it so obvious that the two girls are different though because it Mm -hmm. starts at at least in the book like Egwene is not initially going to go with them when maureen's like we gotta fucking leave she comes up a little bit later with tom right like where they're like we're fucking coming with you guys if you're leaving the two rivers um and then it ends up being this whole thing where Egwene is like really excited to leave the two rivers and to you know she's excited to learn that she has access to power and she's always been kind of like the you know just so excited about everything new so I like that that kind of felt that way in this scene where she was like what do I have to fucking do like let's go yeah yeah. whereas Nynaeve is kind of like what the fuck you want like (laughs) like, why am I here I hate (laughs) everyone um so (laughs) As, as annoying as that is for Nynaeve to still be doing that, I did appreciate that it made it so obvious just where their head is at. So I, ac- I accidentally skipped over uh, leading to this scene. We have a moment in the hallway with Leandrin uh, before they all get into the chambers here where Moraine and Lan are walking through. And you reference something that happened here, Akilia. I-, I have to get off my chest, though. For being renowned for her discretion and secrecy yeah. throughout the entire series, Moraine has zero discretion in the course of this episode. She is loudly discussing Matt and the possi- and their mission yeah. and riding away from the towers with Lan down the hallways like they're Aaron Sorkin characters wandering around the White House, uh, you know, just have it, having this conversation to the wind where Leandrin, of all people, can overhear them talking. It's like, oh, uh, you know Matt, do you? You know all these Two Rivers folk, do you? Interesting, interesting, very interesting, and all, all, all these things. And then even at the end of the scene, it's a great line where Moraine gets this whole, oh, and you know, and the and the Omerlin, the Omerlin bows to only one woman or whatever. And she says it loudly enough that I'm like, Moraine, this is a very secret relationship as established throughout <laughs> here. And you're just like throwing zingers to the wind where anybody might be like, what does she mean by that? I, I, I like I. I'm torn between liking the lines and liking the scene with Leandrin and just being like aghast at Moraine saying all these things aloud in public. I couldn't believe the the what she only bows to one woman <laughs> comment because I was like, I was like, wait, are they really are they really slipping that in there? Like, there's no way there has to be a woman. So I started yeah. going through in my head through all the female characters I could think of that she could possibly like actually tow to. And I was like, wait, there's no way they would just make that, you know, comment without acting it. But I, I think you're right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I really liked, I mean, 
I, it does feel out of character for Moraine to like get in Leandrin's face like that. But I did kind of like that, that it like took her down a notch. It's like, haha, fuck you. You're not perfect. You fake man hating bitch. Like, I really liked that because she yeah, was so trying. Yeah, leads up to that. Yeah. yeah, she was trying to be like, oh, I know who your fucking people are. It's like, just fuck off. Um, but I have to say, like living and working in the D.C. area li- and taking public transit, living and working in Philly <laughs> and taking public transit, you would be fucking shocked at the shit that people talk mm-hmm. about in public that they just assume. That's true. Because yeah. I'm surrounded by people, no one's listening. I listen to everything people say in public, and people talk about shit they should not talk about. So I'm not entirely, I wasn't entirely like, oh my god, like she fucked up by talking loud. And it's like, okay, obviously it makes sense not to do that. Like, if you've got massive secrets about, you know, what could potentially go against the one known bad guy in the world, maybe don't fucking talk about it, you know, if you're not in your room. Yeah. But it Secret, also. Secrets so big, she has to accept exile not yeah. to disclose not to disclose them uh even though that's kind of part of the plan but yeah but that also just kind of felt like i'm so used to seeing that type of scene of like people quickly aggressively walking down a hallway together (laughs) talking about anything and everything so Mm -hmm. it made sense and then yeah i didn't really question it about like why is she being so fucking brazen with everything what what occurred to me too (laughs) last night while i was watching it is like they uh, there's probably like every other page in the entire book series they talk about the uh the serene like faces that the Aes Sedai are able to maintain despite all like stressors mm-hmm. and crazy situations and it was like occurring to me while I was watching last night I was like yeah that really doesn't play well on TV does it so they just completely no, left so that out of the, of, the, of the series I feel like there's also a fun element with that where it's like maybe that is that is the impression that the Aes Sedai give out in public and that's that's how they you know, that's that's Moraine when she first walks into the inn after waiting out in the rain for her dramatic entrance uh, outside uh, the the twin dragons. Uh, it's kind kind of like you know the same way the Jedi have all, all this stuff about oh we don't have emotions we don't have passions we uh, we don't allow ourselves to get into any of these petty things and then like switch to the Jedi Council let's see the ways in which people are expressing their their passions broadly today and completely ignoring all their ideals on a daily basis you know like as as the um, the public face versus the private one. Yeah, that just never uh, plays do- out. Well, because like even, you know, The Witcher, people gave Henry Cavill so much shit because he was so emotive mm. in the show. And then, I mean, how much shit did we give Daniel Henney for, for Lance so far? Be like, he's supposed to be like this like really stoic and he's got, I mean, not Daniel Henney himself. He's playing the character wonderfully, but like they gave him so many lines and he's got so much emotion and it's like, which we, I think we've been enjoying for the most part, right? Yeah, like we want these characters to be kind of that stoic because it makes them more mysterious and like, oh, how powerful mm-hmm. are they? We can't tell. And then if they do it, we're like, what the fuck is wrong? Like, smile or something. Be human. And so <laughs> I feel like there's no perfect way to do it. We're always going to mm-hmm. nitpick on it regardless of what it's supposed to be. But it is kind of weird to see people break character even a little bit. Like with the Moraine, like she feels very stoic and then comes out of these, you know, out of nowhere with these one-liners and it's like, is that, who are you? <laughs> are you the comedic relief of this fucking episode or are you not? <laughs> it is uh, It is cool to see her. I feel like she is being pushed to her limits in a lot of ways in this episode. And, the, and these a lot of big emotional scenes that for me work way better than what we were frustrated with, with the final scene of the last episode with the long, long funeral sequence and oh. the, the lands, uh, the, the, the chest thumping and the land scre- screaming in grief for ages and Moraine tearing up there that just went on so long and seemed so hard to connect to because we weren't really weren't sure what the show wanted us to make of all that other than just show like, you know, being a long scene of really raw 
grief um, expressed publicly. Whereas I thought, I thought this scene of Moraine's exile worked a lot better in that regard of, of when she has to publicly accept her punishment per plan. She, she's the one who tells Swan in private that you need to, you need to banish me. Like I need to get out of the White Tower. The Blues are going to keep me here. We've got to go take care of the Eye of the World for even maybe less clear reasons here than in the novel. Actually, they, they swap this around. This is a pretty big change in the Eye of the World. Learning about the dreams is the final piece of the puzzle for Moraine to realize, oh my God, the Dark One is so strong now and so close. He is about to break free. He's about to be able to reach out of his prison and touch the eye of the world. And if he does that, he will be able to draw enough power to break the seals and be free. And that'll be the end of this story at that point. In the show, it's the opposite. The Dark One, Moraine reveals here, is at his weakest he has ever been. And this is their one chance to go preemptive strike him. Uh, if we go grab the eye of the world and use it against him while he's this, this is the time we need to rush. We need to get the dragon there. Uh, so that's why she needs to be banished here. And it's interesting that they use the oath rod in this scene. I think it's probably one of those cases where they would never do this in the books, but this is a very cool visual way of representing the severity because you know, in practical terms, all she has to do to be to not be able to return to the White Tower is to swear this anyway, because she already can't lie. She doesn't actually. And I guess this is a thing about the three oaths. You only really need the one oath on the oath rod, the oath uh, not to lie, because then anything you swear after that you're bound to. She could just promise never. I will never of my own will return to the return to the White Tower until Swan Sanche orders me back. But but I love the the visuals of this moment, and and we get to see the oath rod in action here, which we wouldn't otherwise get to, and have that visualized um, as the oath passes from Swan to Moraine. And again, not particularly discreet in all the private things that Moraine is saying aloud here, but uh, but but it works for the emotional tenor of the scene, which was very raw and very um, and something we haven't seen from Moraine up till this point. The degree to which this is. This is costing her so much personally, and we get to see who she is as a person so much more than an eye of the world where she is the mysterious, um, you know, more, more the, the mysterious wizard who whisk in and out of the story and uh, at various points. But to me, that's, that's, that's honestly, this is the, the most fun parts of the episode are just between Maureen and Swan, when, yeah. you know, get on your knees. And, uh, and then the, the, the <laughs> one-liner joke about how she bows, she bows to, you know, one woman. And then this scene where she's like whispering her, <laughs> her like, uh, you know, wishes to, to Swan in front of all these women who can channel and who, you know, frequently eavesdrop on everyone. Like, yes, even though yeah. it was. Hear things with the power. It it was still the most fun. Yeah, I was kind of wondering about that. Like, these are supposed to be some of the most like powerful, paying attention people. And I was like, did no one Mm -hmm. see their fingers gently touch? (laughs) Like, did no one? So you know, she's saying all of the like nicknames or titles that Uh uh, Suan has. It was like, are they hearing her? Yeah, like. Do they think that she's just like sitting there silently for like a minute taking this all in or is like, do they hear gentle whispering? Like, what is she's going on? She's not even on? whispering it. She's no, saying she's it like, like saying it out loud. She's, so that's why I was yeah. kind of like, they're choosing to ignore this. <laughs> like, so this is so fucking <laughs> obvious. Um, but the end result is that Moraine is going to have to leave the tower. So this is good impetus to get us out of here. She is already, we've seen her make plans with Loyal at this point, though. I think somebody who hadn't read the book would have no idea what she's making plans with him about for, for the way gates. And this episode does surprisingly little to explain what the hell the gates are, where they're from, what they're going to do. Presumably all that is being shunted to episode seven, the second of the, the pen ultimate episode of this season. Loyal here does not seem 
even fractionally as terrified uh, or or against this plan as he is in Eye of the World, which, you know, the Eye of the World does to establish how dangerous the ways are and how bad an idea this is that they're going to take the shortcut to Faldara. Um, but the last couple, uh, oh, oh, I don't want to skim past. Oh, yeah. It, 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 continuing that emotional arc of how how big a sacrifice this is for Moraine of as she's leaving the tower and all the other sisters are having to turn their backs on her, like really uh, giving this finality. And just the you're seeing the sisterhood that she feels with with the ones who aren't her enemies here with like uh, with Al- Alana's face as she passes by that. that uh, And I, I keep I keep correcting myself, maybe incorrect. It is Alana, right? The green uh, yep, that is Alana. Um, been a major okay yeah um and um we get reactions from from Megan, uh played by sandy mcdade the head of the blue at, at you know like losing her her most important agent in the tower from her perspective here and she's really distraught about all this i feel like they're setting up Megan to be a pretty substantial role in season two maybe uh possibly d- just yeah. the amount of screen time she gets in this episode that was my inclination yeah and the fact that she says like oh i'm gonna leave because ships are disappearing and i need to go figure out what that's about is that in the book mm-hmm. i don't remember them saying that in the book that that's it's like a sign that something's happening. Another great hunt thing, I think. Okay. So then, yeah, that kind of makes sense to me that they would drag her away because it's clear that like they pick and choose which characters are going to be in the show because how many characters, mm-hmm. how many fucking small towns did they just completely get rid of? Hell yes. Where's yeah. So <laughs> it feels like it would be kind of out of character for the show to introduce someone, you know, establish who they are and then just have it be, you know, one episode and nothing else. So I kind of, I agree with you. Unless that they're stepping. Like, okay, fair. But I kind of feel like <laughs> I did see some people online arguing that it wasn't about Steppen it was a more like a bigger dialogue mm-hmm. about the universe I was like whatever I was focusing on Steppen but um, I just feel like the actor uh, that plays Megan is also really cool and so I wish that they would continue it her it felt to me like it, I, I don't know why I can't give you a good reason but it felt to me like Megan was one of those characters where they're just introducing surface level then they're, she's gonna like die like I feel I like I got the feeling oh, she was really? like gonna just I don't know <laughs> die in some episode and then Moraine will be raised to like be the blue or some other important character would like it just oh, felt sort of okay. uh, like flat like she had not that she wasn't acting well but more just like her lines were like uh, very uh, transactional like there, there was a purpose to all of them mm. and it just felt like she but 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 she was an important enough character that you would notice her and so so to me it felt like something was telling me someone's gonna kill this woman or, or something like that mm. oh yeah I could I could see that being the case. And it, yeah, and since she is somebody who is kind of in a nebulous zone of being a combination of multiple book characters, feels like we really can't know for sure. Yeah, like like maybe maybe um, I don't know, maybe the Black Aja or something jump get in, and she's like their first victim or some something like that. But then yeah, like you said, that that led to the 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 Waygate scene, which I was a little disappointed uh, that they didn't because uh, the, in the book they go through like the the city of Camelin, right, and they like find this basement Waygate, mm-hmm. which I I actually thought could have presented a lot lot of fun like plot uh scenes they could have set up uh in the in the future episodes too with the waygates versus having them out in the field in this like big open area because i i felt like they could if could have introduced a lot of uh fun scenes of like creeping around trying to you know learn learn more about yeah, the city yeah. and then get a lot more uh of, of the settings that they wanted to get in there rather than having it kind of right out in the field 
And they've changed the whole design of the gate rather yeah. than being this stone carved thing that has like uh, all these intricate designs and you have to know which of the stones to remove and put in the sort of puzzle thing that then opens as a, um, like the stone itself op op opening wide and giving and giving a passage. Here it's kind of, rep it almost looks like these two prongs, like stone prongs coming up out of the ground with empty space between them. I don't know why they've, visually I assume they just thought that this would be a more, this worked better, more striking on set uh, maybe than, than, or maybe just easier, I don't know, than doing all the intricate stonework designs. The thing that is uh, strange about it from a narrative perspective and a world building perspective is Moraine demonstrates that you need to use the one power to open the way gate in the show, which is very, very odd from what we just read in the books, because we know in Eye of the World, the way gates were built for the O'Gear and they are and they are the O'Gear's way gates. The O'Gear famously who cannot use the power and live in places where you can't touch the power. And the, the gates were right outside the settings and they're the only ones who can navigate them. So why? And it seems like that's still true. They need they need loyal to help them navigate the ways because only Ogier can navigate the uh, the the waste the signs in in there and, and the language and the the written song I guess for how you're supposed to find your way through these twisting passages. But the fact that you need the power to use them makes it seem like well, what good were these ever to the Ogier or what is their connection to it? I don't know. Maybe maybe they'll have a justification for that next time. Uh, as to why they can't. Oh, go ahead. I was gonna say as to why they can't take the horses through the Waygate in this version. Um, I assume that is entirely justified by budgetary problems and the difficulties of getting horses on a green screen uh, in, in, in shots or wrangling them indoors. That's my guess for why, because uh, Moraine has a line about uh, horses cannot survive the ways or, or something like that. Uh, so we got to leave them here, which is funny having just read the chapters where it's the horses who save them getting out of there through and past the Trollocs in time. I kind of don't like at all how they're doing the way gates in the show um, because there's so much like mystery about the way gates and the ways in the book. We're like, mm -hmm. only really Maureen and Loyal know what they are or, you know, have any knowledge that they exist. And now the way that they're doing it here, it's like, so does everyone just accept that there's this big fucking statue in the middle of the field? Like, do they know what that is and assume no one can use it anymore? That it's like a sign of the past? How does Maureen know that all you have to do is go up and fucking open it like a portal and it's totally fine? Like, there are just so many parts to it that I'm like, I hate that. I hate that it's just like a big fucking statue in the field. And then in the, you know, in the book, they they know that they're being followed by Trollocs and shit or that like Trollocs are in because there's like scratches on the mm. way gates because they're, because they're like stone thing. These are fucking massive. How are they going to do that in, you know, how are they going to show that there's something on them in the, the ways unless they're just going to insert like these more giant fucking pillars with like a handprint scratch or something like I just it doesn't fit well, we what I built in my brain and it's pissing me off. <laughs> well, we, we do we really get to see much of inside? I thought we only get like the tiny glimpse of a dark yeah. space inside yeah. the wiggets did i did i no. miss like see seeing what the no, corridors look like inside, which i thought was pretty cool uh like i, I did think it was kind of accurate in my head it was more like like a like in that scene the squid games where they had like all those stairs going up everywhere except like black version black version yeah, of that yeah. that's what i was picturing in my head At Esh yeah. escher architecture yeah, yeah. talking but, about the last episode, I, I think yeah. that was cool that part they did show but i think what what we need to remember is that we should not be surprised at how disappointed we are with it because it relates to the loyal the loyal <laughs> character so if the ways are related to loyal and loyal is disappointing that that's that's probably the, the most reason why <coughs> i assume they're going to be talk 
we'll pr- we'll probably get the history of the ways in the ways, right? Because they have yeah. a long ride, well, a long walk now to do, and they'll be talking a lot about what these places are as we're going through them next episode. Um, not including Matt, uh, as we mentioned before, because the party is reunited here. We have kind of a for me, I I was I I didn't fully enjoy the scene a scene as much as I I might have if I weren't mentally being like, oh wait, which characters met already through the course of this episode? So Egwene and Moraine are reunited, obviously, but then Egwene and Nynaeve got to meet in the tower but oh right she hasn't seen Rand since then so we have to and then I was trying to remember logistically as we go around the circle matching everybody up for hugs and they don't really get to say much to each other they get like one one line each just to uh remind us of the connections but but I'm I'm hoping we'll get some really good scenes with all of them reconnecting in the ways Moraine's even like there'll be time to tell your stories on the on the journey it's a it's a long journey ahead of us uh, except that Matt won't be coming on said journey because they get in walking very very slowly uh, but they guess they get far enough in that the way has to close for some reason I don't know if it's got like a time limit like a stargate it sort of feels like a stargate like Dan, Dan was pointing out um, but Rand turns around realizes Matt is just standing there staring at them ominously and suddenly that brings context to the camera's been cutting to him a lot throughout the scene uh, which I did not really think anything of until that moment because I thought it was just, you know, this is the first time Matt has been himself as far as we know in a, in a good while. Um, but it turns out it's something else going on here. Trying to see if I can get to that one shot skimming back through the episode. We come into the opening here. There's tumbled pillars. Uh, Eric watching along with me immediately says, oh, it's the minds of what's it called? Moria as they enter the space identifying the uh, the parallel here. Yeah, okay, so Matt's kind of hanging back behind. He looks sad. He looks down. Matt, what are you doing? They're asking, come on, the gate's closing. And he's just kind of standing there holding his cloak. I'm looking for it, but I'm pretty sure we don't see the dagger, though I presume that he has it. He looks really uncertain. Yeah, I don't know what to make of it uh, in this particular <clears throat> moment. And then we get a brief lightning flash of, of the stones inside the ways there and cut to credits. Yeah, I looking back at it now, because Matt is the only one that says like, oh, can we change our minds or something like that when they're standing outside? And mm. in the con, like in that scene, I was kind of like, oh, like it's just Matt, you know, shooting the shit, making jokes, being Matt. And then afterwards, I was like, oh, that's supposed to be like an indication that he actually still is kind of fucked up in some way. And mm-hmm does not want to go in the ways um i don't know what that would mean about why he wouldn't want to go because they know they're heading towards uh the dark one so i don't really know what they're gonna end up doing with matt well yeah and there's a very strange inversion there and what she tells them that they're doing which is that for reasons unclear to me she is convinced and i guess swan was convinced that all they have to bring all five of them because they don't know which one is the dragon. So it's like sort of a Schrodinger's dragon box situation here. But they're convinced that all the others are going to die uh, from being along there and that only the dragon will survive. When I feel like the vibe I'm getting reading through these last set of chapters is, again, the opposite in the book where it's that whoever is the dragon is probably going to die fighting the dark one and the rest will be okay. And they're along because they're, you know, they're all friends and moral support and because they don't know which one of them is the dragon. So it's a straight, that was a little head tilting for me as she tells them that then, and or doesn't really fully tell them that 
they're on what she thinks is a death mission for four of them. Um, and she, she kind of, she, she has says that explicitly with Swan or Swan says it, but she sort of hides it from the two rivers folks and just says, well, I can't know for certain, but she also tells them to your thing, uh, Keely about Matt, maybe asking if they can back out. Moraine has a line at some point in this conversation about from here on out, we have no choice in anything. Nothing we mm-hmm. do is our decision. It's entirely, it's all set. It's all the wheel from here, which was, I don't know what to make of that. I, I That was a very, especially in light of Matt staying behind. I have no idea what she means by that uh, in terms of them. No, There are no decisions left, I think she says, or something mm-hmm. to that effect. I wish I had written down the exact line it's all it's all um autopilot from here on out yeah that felt very like when they showed that matt wasn't moving and then they like pan back to all of them standing there watching and i was i expected someone to fucking move to like try to do something about it so now i feel like they're gonna write it off as one of these another annoying fucking moraine things of like well the wheel wheels what the wheel fuck whatever it's just like (laughs) Come on, man. Like, I wa- I wanted some kind of movement. Like, you just put so much effort into his dumbass to save him from the fucking dagger. And then now you're just okay with him staying behind? I had that at the Wheel Weaves uh, quote as one of my last notes from last night. Because, like, I felt like it was super corny. Just, like, the way they did it. And at the very end, it's like, the Wheel Weaves. And I'm like, because it, it, I feel like in the book, it's more of, like, a passing expression that they use when, they're tra- when they don't know what to, yeah. you know, how to explain explain something and I was expecting them to bring it because it's a fun theme to like follow so I, I was honestly as like one of mm-hmm. the, my most minor complaints uh expecting them more to use that ex- fun expression throughout the episodes like peppered in here and there rather than as like a closing I don't know it was <laughs> kind of corny thing yeah it's 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 like her mantra whenever Lan is like, this is crazy. We can't do this. These kids can't, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Then, uh, or, you know, they can't come along. What are you talking about? And then Moraine will be like, the wheel weaves as the wheel wills, Lan. This is part of the pattern now. It's it's part of the pattern. Um, but they had to get that in, I guess, for the trailer line there. Oh, she is wearing her shawl again in the scene. I, I I was wrong. It does come back into the show here. None of them were in the White Tower, but Moraine, Moraine has her blue shawl in this moment as she is dramatically standing parting the way i do like the the little beat of naive being like none of us are going to follow you blindly at this point you need to tell us everything that's going on and, and lay out the stakes for us now and naive continuing to be that that voice of uh, you know you got it you got to give some to get some you can't always be like we you need we all need to tell you all our things but you have, but you don't give us a hint of what the bigger picture is here on that though she still winds up holding back from them what she thinks which is that uh four fifths of them are going to be dead at some point in the next two yeah it sort of episodes. felt like that that uh four four out of the five of them are going to die thing sort of felt like a, a compromise between what you said which was like only the dragon dies and then the rest of the books where it's sort of like you know the dragon kills everyone around him that he loves it's like this sort of compromise where where she's like well actually four of you will die and the dragon will will live mm. Because one component we don't have in the show, not having Elida, is we haven't had Rand's moment of prophecy uh, yeah. of being surrounded by by death and dying and and chaos around him, and and wherever he goes, people are going to die all around him. Or actually, any of the specific Taveran moments for any of them, other than loyal pa- loyal passing and saying it, because we also don't have Min. I totally of all the characters we have not had introduced this season, there's no Min, and she's like our main source of important prophecies. 
related to each of them and related to the stuff she sees around Matt, which seems like it'd be really relevant here in this moment, the things that she saw about him early on. Which, to be fair, Jordan in the book, we've talked about this as one of those things where he just doesn't, he threw so many things early on in the story that are not, have not been reminded to us in the audience or reinforced throughout the course of this enormous novel. And men's visions are maybe one of those things that are ultra relevant to these last few chapters or last couple of episodes. And they have not come up again much in the book since then. And in the show, not at all. We've had no visions surrounding each of these characters and the dreams have kind of gone by the way beside. I assume they'll be back next episode. Um, Somebody pointed out on our last discussion, another thing that as a result of the dreams being minimized so much, Balsamon is barely a character in the season. And we really, he's just like some lingering background threat, right? You occasionally see this kind of cartoony looking fire, fire eyed uh, guy in the back background of these scenes. So I do want, it does feel to me the antagonist, the antagonism here has fallen by the wayside a little bit for maybe that's the price we pay to get all these tower politics, which have been really interesting. And it's cool to get a vision of that world. It, it doesn't, I don't feel like we have a good sense of the stakes that we're rushing into here. It just kind of feels like now it's time to get to the eye of the world. We need to go confront the dark one because um, this is the opportune moment. But the Trollocs have disappeared. The Fades have disappeared. They're not camped around Tarvalin in the same way that they are Camelin, where they need to leave the city to save the lives of of 500,000 people and prevent the start of another Trolloc war here. They've got to like bait them and go go to the Dark One himself. Um, so yeah, I guess, which is to say in closing, I this was an episode where it's like, I was up a roller coaster ride every scene with uh, twists and turns, unexpected changes and additions and, and things from much from the next book or from the prequel book all being brought into here uh, and and moments I really love and others that I was really baffled by. I, I had the most, I think, um, I, I enjoyed it and, and definitely had the most mixed feelings on this one, I think, of any of the episodes so far where I'm like ready to be like, okay, well, if you stick the landing, I'll, I'll, I'll accept everything going on here. I'm here for the grand finale. I, I think it's going to be really cool to see what the ways look like and if they capture the horror of those sequences in in the novel pretty well uh what what are you what do you two think what what about what's how you're feeling about this episode the show so far and going into our set of finale episodes here yeah i'm also had mixed feelings about it um the i do have a question so they said uh suan was having dreams though so is she actually having dreams about balsamon the same way that matt and them are or is she really having a vision I don't remember the specifics of the seed well enough. You said Nick? Suan's having uh, dreams. You said, "Oh, I don't remember." Did, did they say that yeah. in the in the episode last night? They did. Yeah, when she's talking to Moraine, she said, "I've been having dreams, the same dream over and over that he's at the eye of the world and he's weak." Her actual dialogue is like pretty fucking confusing because at one point she says he's weak, mm. and at another point she says he's really fucking strong. So I'm not entirely sure. Um, oh yeah. But yeah, she said she's having dreams of him, and Moraine freaked the fuck out when the boys were. But she was just like, mm. "Okay." So that's why I wonder, like, she used the word dream, but is it a vision? Mm. Yeah, I don't, because also, like, in the books, they talk about, uh, I think in the first one, too, they talk about how, like, everyone starts having these, like, bad dreams in certain places uh, where where the Dark One touches more. So maybe it's an allusion to that. Uh, I don't know. That's a, that's a good good question. She does bring up on the prophecy front. Was this the first time in that scene with the two of them that they explicitly mention that... 
Moraine and Swan were there when an, Ice, yeah. an old Aes Sedai named Guitara Moroso had a foretelling so powerful that she knew the dragon is born. Like, yeah. right, this minute, it just happened. It's like, and it's like, you know, I'll, be, I'll, I'll behold the angel like appearing to <laughs> very kind of moment. And then she was such a big and shocking vision that she keeled over dead after giving that foretelling. So these were the only two who witnessed it. Well, and I assume that was the lead in to the dreams discussion. I am looking back over and remembering now. Oh, right. And Moraine repeats her promise that she's going to kill the kids herself before she yeah. lets the dark the dark one have them. So yeah, reestablish she, that. Yeah. She's questioning if they've been interpreting that vision this whole time incorrectly because she mm. she says like, you know, well, it's been, you know, retranslated or reinterpreted by everyone for how many fucking years. So, you know, whisper down the lane, maybe what we're saying now is not what she actually saw. And then Suan's like, but you were fucking there. And so um, I think that's like the, the lead in then to her saying that she's also having these like dreamy whatever things. But it just there's a couple of discrepancies with Suan's characters that I just wasn't sure if it's supposed to be visions because um someone also I'm on the subreddit someone also pointed out uh that the scene with Nynaeve and Egwene meeting Suan does not fit her mm -hmm. character if we're supposed to believe that she's really intimidating because Nynaeve fucking backtalks her the whole time and she just like smiles at it so it's like you know there's a little bit of a discrepancy as far as you know what she actually mm. believes or is doing um I, I kept expecting Swan to use the one power in that scene I, I don't know if that was just me. Yeah, like demonstratively. Yeah, yeah I agree. Yeah, and in terms of like final thoughts too, I think that the... I, I think the series is turning out to be fun for me uh, as like someone who read the books uh, and like expecting it. I don't know how, how actual television viewers are, are and whether or not they're too excited about it though, just because I feel like there are, are lots of lots of things that we're picking apart that I think even if we hadn't read the books are, mm -hmm. are a little bit uh, unfortunate. So so yeah, I guess I, I to me it's like a it's, it's a fun series to watch and I'm glad uh, we get the chance to, to see it. Um, but but there are some some disappointments along the way. Right. And for the people who haven't read the books, you know, there there are some advantages, too, in that they're probably not particularly upset about Loyal's lack of makeup or costume or size or yeah. <laughs> or, or camera uh, camera work highlighting there. The, the, it's such an interesting thing they have to thread with this show of being appealing to a fan base that is large, but not large enough that you can just cater the entire time. And you've got to update the story ways. You've got to tell something that people are going to be able to follow if they haven't read the book. So I'm, I'm, I'm pretty impressed overall with their handling of that task, I think. And I think that they are, however I feel about any of the individual decisions, I get a sense of there is a lot of thoughtfulness going into every decision and every episode and the way that they are choosing to weave this story in and the mysteries they're presenting and what's changing. Um, I, I, and I don't know how much is that because we're, I've never been in recent years this plugged into uh, a, a show like where, where, you know, where I'm reading yeah. articles that you're sending me, Keely, or, or the ask me anythings with the director or looking in the the x-ray bonus content and thinking about it every week and talking with y'all every week and picking it apart in these really discreet ways but the flip side of being so nitpicky about everything is that it's giving me such an appreciation for how much work has oh, gone yeah. into deciding all of this and and into putting all this together building this world and uh and putting it on screen which one way or another how, however it turns out i have really enjoyed seeing it come to life in that way and especially for you know we've harped again and again on how good these actors are and how well cast and how not how cool it is having like the faces to put to all of that visually here so next time, as a reminder, we'll be reading chapters 46 to 53 of The Eye of the World, the last eight chapters of the book. 
And then we'll be watching next Thursday in our time, episode seven of the show, our second to last TV episode. It's hard to believe we're already there and leading right up to our holiday break. This episode of Wattcast was produced by yours truly. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Caleb Wimble. Keely, where can people find you? On Twitter and Instagram at Keely underscore Reed. Nick, thanks so much for joining us again. It's awesome having you on every time. And hopefully uh, we'll, we'll get to have you back uh, at, least for the, at least for the finale or around that time. We, we, we need to talk about the end of the show and the end of the season once we get there, right? Yeah, thanks a lot, guys. I, I appreciate appreciate you allowing me to jump on and, and uh, nerd out about, about Maureen Swan. Yeah. <laughs> The, uh, the the looks that launched a thousand ships. I, I would be curious to log on to AO3 or fanfiction.net and see the jump in stories there because they have been shooting for shooting up for some of the other characters in recent weeks. And I bet they're going crazy about uh, this particular reveal. Uh, remember, you can find us all at Wattcast.net. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Wattcast Podcast and support the show at Patreon.com slash Wattcast. You can also support us for free by leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcast or your podcast platform of choice. Helps a lot. It's the number two way we find new listeners. The number one way is to tell a friend about the show. Word of mouth means the world to us. And even just, you know, a single share on social can make a huge difference in the number of listeners for a given episode and who will keep on listening along. That's all for today. Thanks so much for listening, folks. And remember, this is not the ending. There are neither beginnings nor endings to the turning of the wheel of time, but this is an ending. Farewell. 